Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. It's a fantastic day, some birthday, wonderful weather. Some people would uh, prefer to be out getting a suntan and others here would prefer to come and get ridiculous. John, uh, thank you very much for your first very entertaining lecture. Um, before we start, I would like to acknowledge the support of the Graduate Division, Vice Chancellor of Research, uh, Joe Cerny, and his staff who have worked so hard to help put this event on, to make it a success. In particular, I would like to thank uh, Teresa Malongo, who has worked so hard on all the details and uh, played a very important part. So, Teresa, thank you very much. So we're very pleased to welcome uh, each of you to the second in the Hitchcock Lecture Series for Spring 96. And without further ado, I'll present John Conway, Princeton University. He's going to tell us about Fractan, a ridiculous logical language. So, you know, there's this problem which uh, I call the collapse problem although other people claim to have invented it. Um, it's sometimes called the end problem. You take n to, well, um, n over 2, if you can, if that's an integer, in other words, if uh, n is even, and to the n plus 1. So you divide by 2 if you can, and otherwise, you multiply by 3 and add 1. Uh, so the problem is, uh, what happens? Well, when you look at this, um, you find, well, let's just have a random number. Um, let's just get 7. No, well, 27 is the one you should be shouting. Um, uh, 7 goes to 22, goes to 11, I can half that, goes to 34, I multiply by 3 and add 1, but then I can half that, multiply by 3 and add 1, but then I can half that, then I can half that, then I can multiply by 3 and add 1, but then now I can half a few times, but then I can multiply by 3 and add 1. Ooh. That was quite interesting, wasn't it? Then, of course, I can't half that, but I can multiply by 3 and add 1. But if I do, it just takes me back to 4 again. So this number um, has me eventually, I get down to 4, 2, 1, 4, 2, 1, 4, 2, 1. Well, if I took 27, I go to 82, 41, 124, 62, 31, 94, 47, 42, 71, dot, dot, dot. After some time, it gets to 9,232. Um, but then, that was its sort of uh, high point. After some time, uh, some further time, it eventually gets down to 4, then 2, then 1, and so on. And every integer that anybody's ever tried has eventually got down to 1. Um, I don't know how far people have tried it nowadays, 
Um, every now and then, you see outrageous reports with tremendously large numbers in them, and I don't believe those for one moment. Um, but uh, certainly, the layman's did it out to four times ten to the nine, which presumably therefore got past ten to the ten by now. <laughs> might have reached ten to the twelve, might not have done. Um, anyway, there's a real interesting question about this sort of game. Um, which is, you know, does everything reach one in this game? Um, very probably it does, because if you think about this for a moment, you see that there are statistical reasons that make it seem very likely that everything gets to one in this game. Um, on the other hand, showing that the statistics is really relevant, you know, the sort of empirical model that you can treat things as if they were random, um, is going to be very hard, and I don't think there's much hope of, you know, I don't really expect to see a solution to this problem in my lifetime. So let's just ask, does, let me just write the question down, does every A go to, go to one? But as usual, when you can't solve a problem, um, you can ask a more general problem. I mean, you see, we notice that this number here um, was a half n plus zero, and you use that if n was congruent to zero mod two. And here, otherwise, you use three n plus one, which you used if n was congruent to one mod two. Now, suppose instead you took n to a i n plus b i um, if n is congruent to i mod some number p. So in this case, p is 2, and there are essentially two values of i. Uh, namely, everything is north or 1 mod 2, so you only need to specify two linear functions, which would make a half n and 3 n plus 1. Um, suppose you do that, um, then can we discuss that general class of games and um, say anything about them? Well, we can. It follows from the kind of arguments I'm going to present today very easily that in general these questions are undecidable, that you can actually make any mathematical question into one of these, any reasonably well formulated mathematical question into one of those. Um, okay. Um, but I think I'm going to start off uh, by not sort of proving that general thing, but by writing my uh, particular 14 fractions on the board. I'm going to be so adept at this that I can write them in any order you like now. I mean, uh, sorry. So it's cheaper to write the denominators first and then the numerators because it economizes. That's up to 27, um, 29, 23, another 77, and the 78. Uh, okay, so these are fractions that I think particularly interesting. <laughs> 
I hope eventually to, to sort of master this method of, of covering the blackboard. So we sort of wander through what eventually appears as connected social prose. <laughs> Uh, so let me just tell you this game. Uh, this is the game I call Crime Game. And, uh, well, it's all a very interesting game to play, but anyway, here's what you do. You start with two, um, and then always, let's say, and from then, and from then on, Always multiply by the earliest of the above, uh, that's to say of A all the way through N, that gives an integral answer. <laughs> I'm not telling you just yet why you do this. You just, your job is just to do it. Um, so we start with two. Now, we ask which of these fractions gives a whole number answer when you multiply it by two? Well, obviously, the denominator would better divide two. And we sort of walk along here, and not very many of them seem to divide it up. But this one does. And this is the first one. So at our first step, we'll multiply by n and get 15. Now, you know, it's handy to write out what they are in fact in form. <laughs> in fact, after a time, it's only sensible to write them in fact in form. So now, which denominators divide 15? Well, you know, I'll let you into a secret. Most of these have a big denominator, a big prime in the denominator. A big prime means 11 or more, two digits. <laughs> you see, this has 13. 17, 17, 19, 11, 29, 23, 19, 17, 13, 11. They all have big primes. Um, and so, usually there's a big prime around, but in this case there isn't. <laughs> uh, but that helps us enormously in finding out what's what. Here there isn't a big prime, so we've got to go back to the, uh, one of these three, and neither of these divides 15, but this one does. So, we'll find ourselves using n, getting 3 times 5 squared times 11. Incidentally, I remarked that uh, it's a, a nice theorem of mathematics that if any number is an integer, then so is 55 times it. <laughs> and, and that means that there's always a fraction that works. Because if none of the other fractions work, then n will work. Okay. So here you see if we're to use one of the earlier fractions with a big prime in it, that big prime would better be 11. There's only one big prime in this number. So we just look for denominators to be, ah, there it is. And we can use it because 33 is 3 times 11, and we have that. So we'll use E now and get 5 squared times 29. And now the big prime's got to be 29. Whoosh! F will be our answer. Anyway, I hope you've got the rule. Uh, what you haven't got is the point, I trust. <laughs> so, um, uh, I'm going to write the sort of stage numbers down here. Um, and now what you're required to do is watch for powers of two.
Um, so, well, let's just pretend that we're going to do this. Uh, in fact, at stage 19, you get the power of two, you get two squared. And um, some of you might like to just sort of check that for. Um, and uh, powers of two become sufficiently rare in this game uh, that whenever they do happen, you sort of find you want to take a little photograph of it so you can show it to your grandchildren who look at your hands and that. Um, so let's, uh, I'll indicate that by putting a box around there. That's my sna snapshot of two. Uh, the next power of two you will see is two cubed, which happens at stage 69. Um, then I've forgotten the stage numbers. Uh, 200 and something is the next power of two. For some reason, this misses out two to the fourth. Um, and the powers of two that you get are not restricted. The next one is two to the seventh, and two to the eleventh, two to the thirteenth, two to the seventeenth, two to the nineteenth. And the answer is, the powers of two that happen are precisely the ones with prime exponent. Okay? Uh, so let's say they are just the ones with prime exponent in order of magnitude. Um, now, um, there is a question really about whether you count one as a prime. I don't count one as a prime, and so I didn't put the snapshot around there. Uh, so let's just say, watch for the later powers of two, because that's the one that we actually start with. And then they're precisely the ones of prime experiment. Um, now this is a sufficiently intriguing uh, theorem that I think my best way to proceed is um, just to prove this theorem as if it were the only theorem I'm going to prove. And then, of course, it might turn out that it is the only theorem I'm going to prove, um, or I might have time to say something else. Um, okay. Um, well, the proof, then, uh, only it's not terribly clear that this is going to turn up with a proof. Uh, the proof is going to be to start with 5 to the n, 7 to the d, 13. Um, uh, and let me uh, uh, just let you into a little bit of the secret. This thing will do other things besides list prime numbers. Okay? And one of the things it will do is ask does d divide f to ask, sorry, ask if d divides n starts at 5 to the n. So if you, if you were have a number d and a number n and you want to see whether d divides n, just feed that number into this game and watch what happens. And I'm going to have little <coughs> comments down here. Um, my, I'm going to suppose that n is qd plus r. You know, where Q is the quotient and R is the remainder on division by D. So I think I've had to suppose that N is bigger than D greater than or equals 1. Not N greater or equals D greater than or equals 1 is better. But in fact, I'll probably suppose that N is a lot bigger than D. I'm not really supposing this. It's just that it helps to have your ideas fixed a little bit. N is probably going to be a lot bigger than D. And um, R will, of course, 
me less than me. Okay, so let's watch what happens at this number. What's the first fraction we'll use? Well, the answer is A, because we've got to, to choose one for which the big prime is 13. Now, lots of you probably thought that 91 was prime. Um, well, in fact, you're near the truth there. Uh, 91 is actually the first number that looks prime but isn't. <laughs> um, uh, since uh, this is an important theorem and a discovery that I'm very proud of, I'll give you the proof of it. You see, if a number is divisible by 2, 3, or 5, it doesn't even look prime. Okay? Uh, so 91 at least debates that test. But then, uh, so it follows that if a number looks prime but isn't, it must be made out of 7s and 11s and 13s and higher. Okay? Now, 7 7s are 49, and that looks square, and they're 49. And 7 11s are 77, and that doesn't look prime either. But 7 13s are 91, and uh, on the diagonal there, we have a number that's much bigger, so there's the end of the proof. <laughs> So, um, so we will in fact use A first, um, and uh, because we have a 7, D is positive here, let's write D greater than 0. We have a 7 and we have a 13. Now when, when we've used A, we'll get a 17, okay? And so what's the first of our fractions has a 17 in the denominator? The answer is B. And we'll be able to use B because we have a 5. 8 to the power is uh, 5.17. Uh, so I think I want a little comment. What is AB? AB is 17 over 7 times 13, and then 78 is 2 times 3 times 13, and 85 is 5 times 17. And we can cross off that and that, and then we can cross off that and that. So A times B is 2 times 3 over 5 times 7. So every time we use an A and a B, we'll rub off a 5 and a 7 and stick in the 2 and a 3. So we will, in fact, be able to do that D times. You see, we have D7s and we have D5s because N is bigger than D. So we'll be able to do that D times. And after we've done it, we'll have replaced D5s and 7s by D2s and 3s. And so we'll be there. We'll have rubbed off the D7s, that's all of them, and we'll have rubbed off D of the N5s. Okay. But then after that, we'll have a 13, but no 7. And what do we do? I'm going to go all the way along to J there. Uh, and if we do J, all it will do is change a 13 to an 11. And that's why I wrote this 13 rather faintly, because I knew it was going to change it. Now what are we going to do? We have our big prime is 11. The first thing that involves an 11 is E, and that will convert it to a 29 when we use F. And so obviously, we'll be applying EF a few times. Now let's have a little comment that EF is, what was it? Uh, uh, 29 over 33 times 77 over 29. It's sort of very easy to see that cancels to 7 over 3. Um, 
So every time you do EF, you'll just replace a 3 by a 7. So we'll be able to do it D times. And then we'll get 2 to the D, 5 to the N minus D, 7 to the D, 11. And then we'll have an 11 with no 3, which means K will be what we use. And that will convert that 11 into a 13. And now you know we're in very much the same sort of situation where we were at the start, except that we have a lot of twos. But we never made use of the twoishness of the denominator in any of our arguments. So as far as we're concerned, we have the same thing. n is very much bigger than d. So it's so much bigger that n minus d is still at least d. Then we'll apply a, b, d times followed by j, just as we did before. And that will convert d5s and d7s into d2s and d3s. And then we'll have 5 to the n minus 2d. And then that 13 will get changed to an 11. Um, and then we'll find ourselves doing df to the dk, which will just convert the freeze back to 7s. 2 to the 2d. Three, no, no, no threes. Five to the n minus two d. Seven to the d. Thirteen. Well, you know, after a lot of these, we'll be in a situation where at two to the q d. Five to the n minus q d. Seven to the d. Thirteen. We do that whole sort of uh, this block of moves q times and. Uh, that's as many d's as you can subtract from n. So let's suppose we're here. Then, what will happen now? Well, you know, qd is n minus r, and n minus qd is r. Um, so, and now r is smaller than d. Uh, so we only have r fives and sevens, so we'll only be able to apply a, b, R times. And what will that do for us? It will rub, rub out R fives and sevens and replace them by twos and threes. So we get two to the n, three to the R, five to the zero now, because it was five to the R and we broke out, seven to the D minus R, 13. But then we'll be, uh, D minus R is still positive, so we still have a 7, so we'll still be able to apply A. And A will rub out a 7 and a 13, rub out a 7, rub out a 13, and replace them by a 17. Okay. And now what happens? Um, well, I'm glad you asked. Um, uh, the prime is now 17, but we haven't got a 13. But we might have a 3. 3 17 is a 51. Um, so if R is positive, we'll use C. Uh, and then what will happen is we'll rub out a 3 and a 17. So we'll get 2 to the N, 3 to the R minus 1. And we'll stick in a 7. 7 to the d minus r. What is it now? 11. Okay. 
Well, you know, I think I'll continue this branch of the tree, supposing that R was positive, because it's very easy to see what happens. Now we've got an 11, and you know, when our big prime was 11, we started doing EF as many times as we had these. So we'll find ourselves doing EF R minus 1 times, and then K, and that'll give us, that'll convert all of these to the Zs. So we get 2 to the N, 7 to the D minus 1, 11 gets changed to a 13. <coughs> Hope I've got that right. And then what happens in that? Um, we find ourselves applying, uh, something's happened to the fives so <coughs> just a little bit uncertain as what's happened. Oh yes, they got, got created by, what actually happens here? I'm sorry, I just went a bit wrong. It never looks like this normally, so I must have just cheated. A is and B is. But let me, I tell you what, let me uh, not worry too much about that. Let me go down to what happens if R equals zero. And, well, I just sort of mentally think what's supposed to go on. If R is zero, then um, we can't use that 51, which is three seventeens, and we have to use capital I, which just drops out to 17. So we just get to that, except that R is zero. So it's two to the N, seven to the D minus one, period. Okay. Well, I thought I was gonna be able to think and talk at the same time, but I'm not. So if R is positive, we do that, then we find ourselves E-adding, which does that. Okay, and now what happens? We rub out a yeah. We should be rubbing out. No, sorry. There's something that's gone seriously wrong again. I'm just very this. <coughs> We're supposed to end up. Oh, I know what happened, I think. Do you want? No. No idea what happened. <laughs> oh, yes, I know what happened. What I've done wrong. Yes, I've got C wrong. Sorry? So she just fixed the sevens? Oh, yes, I do. So it's D minus R minus one still. Thank you. OK. Now let's see what happens. Um, 19. Um, oh, yes. We'll use D here, which is that denominator of D is two 19s, followed by G. So we have another little comment that DG is 5 over 2. And so if we apply DG n times, it'll convert all the 2s to 5s. So we'll get 3 to the R minus 1, 5 to the N, 7 to the D minus R minus 1, 19. And now what will happen? Um, 
Uh, after that, I'll have a 19 but no 2, and I'll find it myself using H, which will, go, which will add 1 onto the 7s, so add the 19 plus an 11 there. Good. And that was H. Good. And just enough room. Blackboard management. <laughs> of course, I've spent some time. Because here we'll, we'll just find ourselves doing EF so many times K, which will just convert these threes into sevens. And so we'll get five to the N, seven to the D minus one, 13. Now, the nice thing is that this is suspiciously like this number here. Not exactly the same, but uh, sort of closely related. Um, now let me show you, I wonder if it's possible to move this. It is, but it's also in great danger that everything will suddenly switch off. <laughs> Lend more. Oh, oh, I see. Look, we've got in the floor there. You can't move it. <laughs> you know, I was once giving a lecture in uh, Durham in England, and there was one of these enormous TV sets on a sort of, uh, it had a three-legged thing down there, and then a pole about eight feet high. <laughs> And then it went up to a big TV set that was, you know, sort of this one. And I sort of came over to this side as I was doing something, this stuff with the TV. <laughs> and I didn't know what was happening at all, because I was looking at the blackboard or something. And somebody very quick winded got up from the front and ran about 10 to 15 feet and grabbed this thing. <laughs> anyway, um, so. Uh, what do we do when we've only got twos and sevens? Well, now there isn't a big time. So what happens is, um, we'll use either L or N for a time. And it, it doesn't really matter which we use. Uh, they both go back to 2 and stick in a 3 and a 5. So we do that N times, and we'll get 3 to the N, 5 to the N. Okay? And if there was a 7 there, you rub it out as well. <laughs> Uh, and in fact, there are fewer sevens than there were twos. So eventually, you will have rubbed out all the sevens. We don't need to analyze it in any great detail. And then after that, we can't use L or M, so we have to use N. And that will add 1, 5, and an 11. And then, um, uh, we're back into this EF to the something K. Okay which just replaces the threes by sevens, and the 11 by 13. Okay, uh, so just in case there's still somebody who can't see that right-hand side, uh, let me summarize the entire thing in the middle here. We had five to the N, seven to the D, 13, and it went to either five to the N, seven to the D minus one, 13, or 5 to the n plus 1, 7 to the n, 13. And this was what it did if r was positive, and this is what it did if r was 0. Okay. Um, so, if you sort of watch it action in enough detail, uh, of course r equals 0 is what happens when d divides n. <laughs> so you can ask which way it goes of these two and see whether d, d divides n or not, if that happened to be the thing that's interesting to do. Um, but let's actually imagine what does happen with this game 
if we started off at, say, I'm going to rub out some of the middle of this now. So if I have some work. Let's suppose we start this off at uh, 5 to the 99, 7 to the 67, 13. <laughs> uh, suppose we start this there, what would happen? Well, 67 doesn't divide 99, so it would take what I'll call the high road, and it would come back with its next question, whether 66 divided 99. Well, that's just about a sillier question. After that, it would ask whether 65 divided 99, and so on. And it would go on asking these questions until it got to the question whether 33 divides 99, and then the answer would be, yes, it does. <laughs> and so we come instead to this thing here. Now, what's that? N is 99. So this is 5 to the 100, 7 to the 99, 13. So now it's asking whether 99 divides 100. Well, no, it doesn't. Does 98 divide 100? No. 97? No. Oh, but 50 does. Um, and so when it would work its way slowly and steadily down to 50, and then it would reset to 101, uh, 7 to the 100, 13. Now it would ask, does 99 divide 101, 98, etc. And you wouldn't get the F answer until it got all the way down to this last question, does 1 divide 101, to which the answer is yes. Um, okay, now let's ask, of all the numbers that were on this board, most of which I've rubbed off, which ones of them have a ghost of a chance of being powers of 2? Okay, well most of them have no chance at all because they're divisible by things like 11 or 13. And there aren't many powers of two that part. Um, but this one down here does have a chance of being a power of two. And in fact, it's the only one that does. <laughs> okay? And when is it a power of two? Precisely when D is one. Okay? This is the only one that has a hope of being a power of two. And it is a power of two when D is one. So just before it got to here, it would actually produce the number 2 to the 101, 7 to the 0, which is 2 to the 1. So I hope you can see now how this works. Um, uh, only, it, it's really not a prime finder at all. It, uh, what it does is for each integer in turn, it finds the largest proper divisor of that integer. Okay? And then it outputs, as it were, this is really the output state, um, and the output is 2 to the n, where n is the integer we're talking about, 7 to the d minus 1, where d is that property divisor. And that's a power of 2 just if the largest property divisor of n is 1, which is to say just if n is prime. Okay, so, well, there's that proof. It doesn't sort of tell you too much, I hope. Um, but um, it does at least prove that this list of 14 fractions has the property I said it has. Okay? Um, it, it basically computes prime numbers. And now I want to introduce you to Fractran, which is my improvement on Fortran. And, 
And it's supposed to convey the same sort of flavour of a slightly archaic or, or something. Language. Um, so fractal is a logician's computer language, um, and what you do is uh, you have, uh, I mean, it consists of a number of programs. Here's a fractal program. Um, uh, and typically it has a number of things which are called program lines, and line P might say 2 over 5 go to Q, um, comma, 3 over 7, it possibly says else, 3 over 7, go to R, else, 1 over 2, go to P, else, stop. <laughs> uh, except that every line has that form. And so we normally just abbreviate this until it says uh, two-fifths go to Q, three-sevenths go to R, a half go to P. Okay, and let me tell you what it means. And then you see you have line Q and line R, which say similarly boring things. You know, four-fifths go to R. So that's what a fractal program looks like. Um, every one of its lines has this same sort of form. You've learned completely the syntax of a fractal program. Uh, and now I'm going to tell you the semantics. In fact, one of the interesting things about this is that the syntax and semantics of fractal programs are so simple that you really can learn very quickly. Um, uh, so in the semantics, what you do is you have a working integer. So means. Um, replace, or well, let's say if at line P, replace your working integer. Uh, at any time, the contents of your sort of store in a fractional program consists of just one integer, okay? Which is called working integer N. And uh, what the meaning of this is, you replace N by two-fifths of N, if that's an integer. Uh, let's say if this is an integer, else three sevenths of n, if that's an integer, else n over two, if that's an integer, else you stop. Okay? So what you do, the, the list of fractions just tells you that you are to replace your working integer by that fractional multiple of it, provided that gives you an integer. And you take the first one that gives you an integer, if there is one, and, uh, and then, of course, under these circumstances, you, you go to line Q. In these circumstances, you go to R. And in these circumstances, you go to P and so on. Uh, so uh, you multiply by the first of these fractions you can, and then you jump to the appropriate line, and that tells you what list of fractions to choose next. Um, so that's a fractional program. And now um, I'm going to sort of start by showing you um, uh, how to program in Fractran. Uh, but I think first um, I'll show you what uh, 
the sort of flowchart I normally use. Um, so you have a node for each line, P, and then um, you have a line here marked with two fifths going to Q, and that's got a single arrowhead on it. And then you have another line with two arrowheads marked three sevenths going to R, and then one with three arrowheads marked one half going to P, and so on. And then there will be other things coming from these. And the number of arrowheads on a, a branch denotes the priority. So if you're at P, you first see if you can multiply by the fraction on the thing with one arrowhead. And if so, you do so and go to the, what's at the end of that arrowhead. Otherwise, you'll put the one with two arrowheads. So this is a much more convenient language than this official nonsense over here. Okay. Uh, so now let me show you uh, a few programs to add some numbers. Uh, you see, uh, what we do is we select a number of primes, which will usually be the, the smallest few primes, and the exponents of those primes are the numbers we're really thinking about. Um, and uh, so I want to write a program that will add the exponents of A and B. So what do I do? Well, I just say, um, I come in, oh, by the way, I forgot to tell you, one of the program lines is marked as being the starting line. And you indicate that by just putting a little arrow into it. So at line P, I look, I multiply by two thirds and go to P. And then if I can't do that, I multiply by one and stop. <laughs> so yes, perhaps I should have indicated also that you can just have an arrowhead that goes nowhere. And that means when you get there, you stop. And, and you know, just for completeness, I'll put up a notional one on here. <laughs> but you know, in fact, the simplest method is to have the convention. If ever you don't like a number anyway, it means you've written one there. Okay, so I hope you understand what happens to this. I multiply this by two thirds, and it's now true to the a plus one, three to the b minus one. This is, I'm at, at state p in this diagram. And I still come back to state p. And then I'll find myself multiplying by two thirds again. And then eventually I get 2 to the a plus b, 3 to the 0, and then I'm at the end. <laughs> then I can't multiply by 2 thirds again. So this is a very simple little program that takes 2 to the a, 3 to the b, to 2 to the a plus b. Okay. Well, that wasn't such a very sensible program because it's sort of slightly destructive. It would really be rather nicer if I kept the original answers instead. So let me show you what I'm going to do now. Um, well, the first thing I'm going to do is clear register 5. Uh, that's because somebody may have been using this machine before me and they may have left something off put in register 5. <laughs> and now I'm going to um, copy register 3 into register 5. Um, that transfers the contents of register 3 to register 5. You see, this makes the contents of register 5 0, and then this is just as we did before, that's register 3 to register 5. Then, when you finish doing that, in state R, I want you 
to um, do 6 over 5. Now, then let me just illustrate what happens here. Here we have 2 to the A, 3 to the B, 5 to something horrible. Because, as I said, somebody might have left that in the machine. By the time we come out here, we'll have 2 to the A, 3 to the B. Okay? By the time we come out here, we'll have 2 to the A, 5 to the B. And now, we uh, multiply by 6 over 5 repeatedly. So, by the time we come out of there, we'll have 2 to the A plus B, 3 to the B. Okay? So, 5 to the 0. You know, we are always sort of methodological and clean. We always leave the 5 register at 0. <laughs> but we can't sort of guarantee what our neighbors will do. Uh, so, what that is, is a non destructive adder. It takes what's in the, in the free register and adds it to the 2 register, but it keeps it in the free register too. Now, the, uh, the reason I wanted that is because now, I can do this game to it. Um, and so what happens here is you subtract one from the pre... Oh, no. Sorry, I don't want to do that. I want to do it from the seven register. I subtract one from the seven register, and then if I could do that, I proceed to add the three register to the two register. And then I subtract one from the seven register, add the free register, the new register, and so on, until eventually I can't do it. So what this does is if you start with uh, two to the naught, three to the b, seven to the c, it will end up with two to the b times c, three to the b, seven to the naught. And then, you know, that's clear. What do you want to split state s? Sorry? You just cleared the seven register. One split state S, you'll attract one. Oh, oh, I did the wrong thing. I'm sorry. I did the entirely different thing. I should have said, subtract one from the seven. You subtract one, you don't go back to S, you go to P. I'm sorry. Uh, so you subtract one from the seven register if you can, and then add the pre-register to the two register, and you repeatedly do that until you can't subtract one from the second register. Then I'm asking you to clear the free register, and so this program converts three to the B, seven to the C, into two to the BC. Uh, let me now um, precede it by a little piece that um, does 21 over two lots of times here. And this then copies the two register into the three and seven registers first, and then does what I've just done. And so here, if you start with two to the n, this will get to two to the n squared. Okay? So I hope you can see that uh, this programming language is actually pretty efficient. <laughs> I've just programmed here a calculation that will take you from 2 to the n to 2 to the n squared. And it's very easy to see that any computable function in any of the standard senses that term can actually be computed by one of these programs. Okay? Now that's very nice. There's a fraction program that computes anything. In other words, you can start with 2 to the n and have some fraction program and get to 2 to the f of n 
And I've just illustrated this with a squirt, but some of you might like to write a program that computes antifactorial rules. You know, whatever. Fine, well, thank you. Um, but you know, fractal uh, was too complicated a language for my taste. So I'm now going to introduce a lot of dialects of it. Um, I'm going to introduce programs called Fractran N, one to each integer. And Fractran N just consists of all the N-line fraction pro Fractran programs, okay? Uh, but I'm also going to introduce uh, Fractran um, N and a half, um, which consists of all the N and a half-line Fractran programs. Um, and what a, a half-line is, is defined to be a line that you can never jump into. The only way you can use it is by being the starting line. So there'll be at most one half-line. And now I'm going to start trying to prove that, in fact, a one-line fractal program can compute everything, can do anything a fractal program can do. That's not quite true, and so I'll fail when I prove it. But you'll see that uh, that won't make very much difference. So here's the game. I simulate um, uh, what do I, I do? I simulate uh, n at p by <coughs> p times n where um, uh, p is a large prime. So in other words, what I'm going to say is I'm actually going to number my um, program lines, which come out as the nodes in these diagrams, by large primes. I'll say begin at 101. Um, and I'm going to suppose that the programs I'm doing never use any of these large primes, the new primes. There are always many more primes available. So if, for instance, you had that, okay, I'll simulate this by two-thirds times 103 over 101, comma, four-fifths times 107 over 101. Okay? So wherever, if our working number in the original program was n, our working number in the new program might be, say, 101 times n. <laughs> but then look what actually happens. I, uh, I, I'll come to multiply it by this fraction first, um, and that will just replace 101 by 103 and multiply it by 2 thirds. Um, and that's just what I wanted it to do. Um, so, you know, and replace this by this, etc. Uh, the trouble is, this doesn't quite work. I mean, suppose there were a loop like that. Um, then um, I'd find myself multiplying by a half of 101 over 101, and unfortunately that cancels and it doesn't quite work. So this only works if there are no loops in the program. But that's okay. Whenever there was a loop, I just invent a new node and do that. I can always sort of break loops into two pieces and then you know, if the cost of having a slightly more complicated program to simulate, they can arrange the web in loops. Um, and then this now uh, gives uh, a fractal one program 
that takes um, P times N to Q times F of N. I mean, you see, I'm supposing, uh, let's suppose that this is a program uh, that finishes at state Q and starts at state P. Let's suppose that we arrange that the only place that this stops is at state Q. You can always do that. If it would have stopped somewhere else, have an arrow going from that to state Q instead of the state Q that you have. And so uh, you, we can't, with a factor in one program, quite manage to get n to go to f of n. But we can make, say, 101 n go to 113 f of n instead, which is quite good. Um, but now, we can follow this instead by 1 over q at the beginning of this, at the end, sorry, of this factor in line. And then, uh, that will at least get the ending right. I'll divide by q. You only divide by q when, you, when nothing else will possibly work. And that's fine. Um, so now, we, we, I proved the theorem that given any factor in program, that computes, that changes, goes from n to f of n, there's another factor on program that goes from p times n to f of n, where p is a large prime not mentioned in the first one, so to speak. Well, now we can make a factor on one and a half program that does this. Uh, the, the top line, which is the half line, just does p um, go to the full line. And the full line consists of all these fractions. B over A, P, S, comma, double dot, and any one over Q. Um, all going to itself. So this is a half line. And its only function is to multiply the starting number by P. And then you never use it again. So you come in, use this line once to multiply by P, and from then on you refer to this line. So, um, Fractran has this really rather amazing property that no matter how long the program you have for it, you can replace that by a program that's only one and a half lines long. And a half line is really a bit of minimal thing here. You just multiply by P, that's the only operation you're doing, that's half line. Um, okay, so it should now be obvious to you that you can write a one line fraction program that does almost anything, or one and a half line if you want to be precise, that does almost anything. Um, well, um, so you will now perhaps guess how I got that from. I wrote a program to compute primes. Of course, I did it pretty efficiently um, in the first place. And um, then sort of gradually simplified it out, this thing. You can even see some of the places where there was a single loop. You see, this 33 thing, if you were in state 11, I wanted you just to multiply by 7 over 3, transfer the 3 edges to the 7 register. But that's a loop. And in my simulation procedure, I couldn't do that. So I had to split state 11 into state 11 and state 29 in order to do that. Um, but it's a fairly easy task program. OK, so let me just tell you some of the highlights then. Um, one of the things you can do as soon as you've worked out a, a logical programming language is to um, write down a universal machine. Um, so I wrote down a universal machine. Well, actually, let me not tell you about the universal machine just yet. Let me tell you about my pipe 
thing. Uh, one of the functions you might like to compute is the infinitesimal digit of pi. So I wrote down a, I think it was a 38 fraction list. And the game here is you start this at 2 to the n and wonder what the next power of 2 is, and it's 2 to the n decimal digit of pi. So pi, of course, is 3.14159265358993926436436. So for instance, if you gave it um, 2 to the 5, as it's starting in the book, the next character you'd see would be 2 to the 9. Um, and that's quite a nice little program. But then, uh, comes the universal one. This this one I call pi game. Um, but then comes the universal one. What do they call that? Poly game. And that's twenty-one fractions, which unfortunately I can't remember. Uh, where remember those fourteen? Otherwise, I'd write them down for you. But what they do is you start at 2 to the 2 to the n times some constant. And it might stop at 2 to the 2 to the f of n. I mean, if it does stop, then what it stops at, if it's 2 to the 2 to something, you call it 2 to the 2 to the f sub c of n. And otherwise, you leave f sub c of n undefined. And then the theorem is that no matter what computable function you give me, uh, I can, so to speak, look up look it up in my catalogue and find the catalogue number, and then this one list of fractions computing. And I have those 21 fractions written down somewhere. So for instance, uh, you might say the factorial function is my favorite, and I say, okay, well, that is the 77th function. <laughs> okay, it's not going to be true, I might tell you. Um, and then you'd start at 2 to the 2 to the n times 77, and then, then it'd stop at 2 to the 2 to the n factorial. And then you say, no, I'm telling you a lie. Really, my uh, favorite function is the nth decimal digit of pi. So I say, well, <coughs> that's really number 771, <laughs> and digit of pi. Mm -hmm. uh, well, again, I'm lying when I say that that's number 771. In fact, I remember that number 77 is actually the constant function 1. But I did write down the constant that makes my universal machine compute digits of pi. I wrote it down on half a sheet of paper. It looks like 3 to the 2 to the uh, 101 factorial times 491 over 657 plus 2 to the 101 factorial squared times something like that, uh, etc. times 5 or something times um, And basically what actually is happening is these fractions in here are the fractions that make, that, that just constitute a program to compute pi. And so you, it, the way I find the catalog number is I work out a program in this language to do whatever I want and encode it up 
being true. Yes, but this number, 101 factorial, is just chosen that it's so big that all these denominators here divide it to. Perhaps I better make 1,001 factorial. <laughs> <laughs> and I actually wrote down the catalogue number, because of course it is in this form. I couldn't write the decimal digits or that out. I think this is interesting because um, what it does for you, uh, you see, the, the old books on this sort of stuff, well, they're not terribly old, any of them, a few decades old, proceeded like this. They sort of told you that, you know, anything had a Gerbil number and you could do such and such with it. But of course, the Gerbil number for a million function would be too complicated ever to write down. <laughs> okay. And so on. And they do a whole lot of things like this. And my aim was to improve the programming language uh, until uh, it got to the point where you could write down So now, any function for which, you know, any function you like, I can actually tell you the constant that does that function. I can write it down. And uh, so there was some point in doing this. I took a very complicated function, the thing that could be presented to pi, and actually worked out a program to do it. And it's quite a simple little program, just a list of 40 fractions, 38 fractions, and it's all right. Um, and I believe that this is a very good way of doing recursive arithmetic, as a final answer. You see, by keeping it into this language, the great advantage of fracture is it's something that is easy to program. That is to say, it's easy to make it simulate anything else. Because a number can always be decomposed, in, it, sorry, decomposed into its two parts and its three parts and its five parts and so on, which you want to use. But it's also easy to make anything else simulate it. And a lot of proofs in recursive function theory just consist of one thing simulating another. And so here we have a, something that just says, look, simulate me. It's easy to simulate me. And it, it's very easy because it only has one number. And the entire syntax of the program, you only need to mimic programs just have one line. And a line is just a list of fractions. Um, so it gets very, very easy to do that. Anyway, I think I'm going to shut up. Oh, yes. Um, well, now, um, if you actually think of what one of these fraction games is doing, let's think of the fraction game two-thirds, comma, a half. What's that do? Well, if your 6n plus naught, oh, sorry, if, if n is common to naught, 1, 2, 3, 4, or 5, or 6, what you do? If n is 0 mod 6, you replace it by 2 thirds n. If n is 1 mod 6, you stop. If n is 2 mod 6, it's a half n. 3 mod 6 is 2 thirds n. 4 mod 6 is a half n. 5 mod 6, you stop. Uh, so you see, this is a collapse type game. <laughs> okay? It's, oh, well, I've worked well in the stop orders, which are a bit funny, but I mean, uh, okay. Um, so, um, uh, the sort of collapse format is sufficiently strong that it includes the fraction format. Okay? And therefore, in general, collapse games are undecidable. Because I could be asking you for a program to solve them, solve the whole problem, basically. 
so this theorem really does prove that that kind of game is unsettled. But it doesn't tackle any particular one. You know, that's the fact that I can design a program to be doing anything <laughs> doesn't mean that the particular program that the collapse game is doing isn't a decidable one. <laughs> Question back. Um, doesn't the fact that a 21 fraction uh, universal program exists mean that uh, you never need more than about that many to, to write anything? Yes. Perhaps I should say too that there was a clever grad student at Cambridge when I was interested in this stuff who uh, actually took the problem of thinning down these numbers somewhat. <laughs> um, and um, yes, well, first of all, what you say is true. You never need very much to do anything. I mean, you see, if this 21 fraction game here is already on the side. I have an explicit list of 21 fractions. And the problem of whether this game stops at a particular integer is an undecidable problem. You know, some integers it stops, some it doesn't. But the problem of giving an integer doesn't stop at that integer is an undecidable problem. So that's one of the sort of merits of the system that I was trying to sell before. You, you get these undecidability results much more concretely than you used to. Um, but then I should talk about John Gickard's improvements. He found a universal fraction game in either nine fractions or seven fractions. Um, seven fractions, if you want two to the n to go to two times constant, to go to two to the f of n. And nine fractions, if you want to do what I just did and make two to the two to the n. Uh, oh, sorry, I have to do one more round. Nine fractions, if you want that, and seven fractions, if you want to do the other thing. Um, and he also proved that three fractions isn't enough. However, uh, got fractions are so complicated uh, that you couldn't write them down. Um, I mean, what he does is very, very clever. He takes a program that uses a certain number of fractions. Um, and you know what you're really doing is uh, any integer is the shape 2 to the x, 3 to the y, 5 to the z, and so on. Well, this point x, y, z is an integer point with non-negative coordinates. And so you're really, of course, just jumping around in a room which is the first orphans, that's to say x, y, and z are positive, positive orphans, um, with the rule being that you add first this vector if, you, if that keeps you in the positive orphans, <laughs> otherwise this other vector, otherwise this other vector, and so on. Uh, found a clever way in which if you have such a program with n fractions that works in the positive orthons, with just n plus two fractions, you can make it work inside any polyhedron region at all. And then he sort of programs the polyhedral region. So he, uh, it was very, very funny. It's, it's like sort of taking this room instead of the positive orthon. Only imagine that it's infinite somewhere. It's quite terrible. And what you do is throw a ball around until it bounces off the walls. And he programs the walls to so that, you know, the shape of the room, in other words, so that it can be different. And none of that anything will be a refraction. So in this way, he's got it down to seven. But his individual fractions will contain more decimal digits in their numerator and denominator than you care to think. Say, 10 to the 10 to the 10 digit numbers, top and bottom. So you can't actually write them down, which is to prove that there exist seven fractions, which make the universal game. My 14 fraction time generator, I had another graduate student. Now, John Rickard wasn't a student of mine, but anyway, I had a graduate student in Cambridge who, the day he left, I met him in Sainsbury's 
supermarket uh, at the checkout line, and he produced a tiny little piece of paper from his pocket, and it had 13 infections on it, and he handed it to me. And I didn't say anything, <laughs> but I presumed that that was 13 infractions of computer crimes instead of 14. Then I lost that piece of paper. <laughs> You know, it might not have been right, because these programs often have bugs in them, uh, more often than other programs, I don't know. Uh, but the, the version of Pi Game that I put in my paper on this subject has a bug. It's really infuriating. Um, it takes a fantastically long time, I may say, to compute the entities of Pi. If n is 1, it was all And then rubs it out. Because <laughs> <laughs> this is normal thing. And it actually always produces the answer zero, so it doesn't behave like that. <laughs> and uh, I sort of didn't notice that. I wrote the paper up in a tremendous hurry. Um, in fact, the constant that I derived from it that makes the universal thing compute digital pi is still accurate. Um, and you know, you just change one of the fractions or something and make it right. But these things, it's very easy to have bugs in them. And um, so I don't really bad for anything else than the ones you know, I write down, so to speak. I did play for a very, very long time with the 21 fraction universal game. I found out what uh, functions each of the numbers less than 1,000 computes, for instance. And you see, theoretically, that should be supposed to be undecidable whether the two integers compute the same function. But at the beginning, they're all quite easy. Uh, one more question, and uh, after that, uh, people can thank the speaker, and uh, people want to ask further questions, please stick around. What was the sort of complexity of that range of functions? Very, very simple. Um, uh, there's, uh, you know, you don't realize this when you sort of come into it. You, you think there's a simple function, say the identity of zero function, or, or n plus one, or something. Um, but there are many simpler functions than those. Um, uh, for instance, the nowhere defined function. <laughs> and then the function is defined only at zero, where it takes the value of zero. <laughs> well, now you can generalize those to functions defined only at, say, 57, where it takes the value of 93. <laughs> uh, well, lots of the starting functions are like that. Um, uh, you don't get anything. I think you get the identity function in the first thousand. Uh, you get the constant function zero and the constant function one and maybe the constant function two. Um, you get the function that's defined everywhere. Yes, you get the, the function that's the identity function, except that it's not defined as zero. That's one of the, the possibilities. And so on. But then I wrote down the. I found the first integer, I believe, that gives the successor function. And it's something like a four-digit integer. 
And then the first instance gives the predecessor function. Um, okay, so I, I can't remember whether I ask it to be defined at zero or not, but that n plus one is value is n. Um, and that's about five digits. And then, just for fun, I wrote then some other functions like n squared and so on, um, which you can do in, you know, sort of 10 digit integers. But as soon as you're prepared to allow integers like this to be written down, in other words, you, you measure the size of an integer by the amount of paper you can write it on, taking exponential notation into account, um, then essentially any function you like, you know, you can write in about the page. Um, I mean, as long as it's not an absolutely crazy one. Um, I mean, it would be entertaining, for instance, to You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.